Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to Gem 23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I am a senior at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to Gem 23 series proceeds and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, Growing in a Green World, on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM23. This week, we are joined by Kevin Lee, who is currently pursuing a master's in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Previously, he worked with Deloitte Climate and Sustainability, advising Chinese companies on decarbonization and ESG, and with the United Nations in China, coordinating UN operational activities for development in China. Kevin, thank you for talking with me today. Good afternoon, Charles. I'm very happy to be talking to you today. It would be great to hear a little bit more about your background, your experience growing up in China. How did that upbringing influence your current interest and approach to climate policy, particularly in the China context? I grew up in Shanghai. I was up until the age of 15. I was uh, in Shanghai, where I went through the local school education system. I then spent about four years going to a high school here in the U.S. Um, and during that transition period, I would say that as a kid growing up, you see a drastic contrast between the two societies that are today two of the most important international players in economy, in security, but also in climate change. But back then, coming from a society where development was rapid and economic cooperation, trade with the rest of the world, manufacturing was abundant. And that comes naturally with the problem of pollution, of environmental challenges, and more and more so importantly, climate change, uh, sort of CO2 emission. And that journey, I think, put me into perspective the idea of wanting to understand how humans are interacting with the broader ecosystem that we live in, how China is a growing, was growing to become this incredibly large ec economic powerhouse that has the potential to provide goods and services for the entire uh, global economy at low cost, but also at the same time, shouldering a greater sense of responsibility when it co comes to climate change mitigation, but also adaptation and the impact of climate on not just China itself, but also its uh, impact across the entire world. Um, I completed my undergraduate training in environmental and, uh, environmental and sustainability sciences at Cornell University. And during that period of time, really had the opportunity to engage with a variety of actors and stakeholders in sort of at the forefront of climate change and decarbonization, having worked uh, with a number of nonprofits looking at, for example, climate policy in the aviation space, decarbonization of the aviation industry, working with a small island nation, Tonga, um, developing a, a proposal for a, a national level trust fund that aims to build climate resilience capacity for their senior officials, 
and uh, working with the Cornell's China Economic uh, Center, particularly looking at a very interesting connection between pollution disclosure and how that affects consumer, consum- consumer behaviors. I graduated Cornell uh, during the pandemic that brought me back to China with two very interesting opportunities. One is working with the United Nations country team in China, where I supported the UN China chief and kind of coordinating overall sustainable development operational activities at the country level. So what that means is really working with the various stakeholders on the ground, including the government counterpart, including embassies and, and including civil society to push for partnerships agendas that would have a material benefit that aligns with the 17 sustainable development goals um, and making these projects come true in China. But also I spent a year with Deloitte where they rolled, rolled out a new practice in the Shanghai office after which private sector players are, are really looking to develop their sustainability strategy, looking to elevate their ESG and sustainability reporting practices and developing decarbonization goals. And I think I joined at a time that was very important at the initial stage for them to help set these ambitious targets. Um, And now I'm currently a master in public policy student at the Kennedy School, where I'm interested in a variety of things, including the energy transition, China-U.S. climate cooperation, and the geopolitics of uh, climate change. Great. Thank you, Kevin, for the overview of your background and upbringing, how it's influenced and impacted the way that you view the importance of U.S.-China relations. On that note, I'm curious to hear from you a little bit more about what your thoughts are on the the past, present, and future state of U.S.-China relations. As you know, it's been a very complicated situation in terms of the broader geopolitical dynamics and how that has impacted conversations around the specific issue of climate At the same time, both countries have expressed not only significant commitments to climate with net zero goals, but also have expressed the importance of maintaining strong relations and collaboration on these issues. But in the current moment, you know, we're seeing increasing fracturing of that dialogue and in some respects, discontinuation of that dialogue, although perhaps temporary. And I'm curious just How do you see the past, present, and future of U.S.-China climate dialogues? I would say that we are currently at a turning point, particularly after President Trump came into office in 2017. I think that is followed by a series of economic, trade, tech, and and security, uh, I'd say confrontations between the two countries. I think China and U.S. uh, celebrated a, a 50 years of diplomatic engagement in 2022. And I think throughout the first 50 years of engagement between China and US, we really witnessed a lot of very great examples of collaboration that benefited people um, across both uh, sides of the Pacific. And we somehow found a model that were uh, realistic and practical enough uh, to have grown both countries in ways, including economic cooperation, including cultural exchange, including academic exchange, and to a great extent, climate cooperation and environmental cooperation. But we're at a point where uh, I think the U.S. is uh, taking a somewhat of a 
compartmentalized approach to the various issues that U.S. and China confronts. On that end, you have climate cooperation, uh, which has been through some ups and downs over the past year or so, uh, including a, a visit to Taiwan by Speaker Pelosi that resulted in sort of the government of China's retaliation that halted a temporary, uh, that introduced a hiatus to the high-level climate dialogue. But that was very quickly kind of diffused when the two heads of states had a, uh, a rather historic meetup in Indonesia during G20 in November 2022, where that conversation started again. So you could say that there's been some ups and downs, but I think that there's a numerous areas that China and U.S. can kind of materialize this collaboration. We saw that during a COP26, China and U.S. signed a rather surprising but very welcome pledge on methane collaboration. And that joint agreement very much introduced a sense of optimism, but also boundary-pushing momentum between the two uh, governments. I think there's obviously that room for collaboration when it comes to CCUS, which is carbon capture, storage, and utilization. And I think there's opportunities to involve the private sector in a more collaborative manner to, to leverage the, the human capital, to leverage uh, on the U.S. side scientific innovation on both sides, capital flow and the amount of capital that's willing to, that are ready to invest in climate change to kind of facilitate that high level climate cooperation between the two governments. So in terms of the future, I think climate change has to be the area that the two countries have a, have a genuine uh, interest in collaborating. Because if we look at the trajectory that we're on in terms of CO2 emission, in terms of the trend that we're witnessing in terms of greenhouse gas emission rising, we are essentially running out of time. And with every COP that we have, with, with every year that goes by, we're one step closer to, the, to, get, to getting to the point where climate impact is going to be irreversible. And with every day that we have left, we must rely on the people across U.S. and China, but also with the rest of the world and all stakeholders out there to, to work together and to push that agenda forward, to build that momentum and, and, to, see real, re, and to realize that decarbonization and adaptation potential. Um, and currently we're at that turning point. I think how we approach this issue going forward will have deep and, and far-reaching consequences for the society that we live in today. Thank you for that. I'm curious, many public and private sector leaders as well as scholars have written about a co-opetition model between the U.S. and China on clean energy, climate technology, where, yes, there's certainly a need for a collaborative approach, particularly given you know, trends around globalization and the need for um, integration of different supply chains and technological innovation spillovers. At the same time, many believe that competition, particularly healthy competition, can be valuable in bringing down the costs of key technologies and advancing innovation. I'm curious what you view as the proper balance between these two modes of collaboration and competition, and how do we tell you know, what is the proper balance between those two? That's another very good question. I think it's very realistic to consider a model of coopetition. Um, I would say that it, it makes economic sense to pursue that model because 
you want to drive down the cost of the energy transition as much as you can. You want to build a resilient global supply chain where not only developing uh, developed nations have access to clean energy resources and products, you also want to be able to create that economic case for the developing countries to come on board as well. And that's how you that's how you scale, frankly. That's how you that's that's how you really enter the race to a to a faster energy transition by introducing products that are competitive. And by competitive, I mean at lower cost. So I think it makes economic sense in the in the argument to pursue a more healthy competition on certain fronts, such as a renewable energy technology and uh, supply chain. But we need to be careful about that because we need to rely on very candid and transparent communications between the two countries in order to actually get there. Yes, competition could be beneficial, but competition must also be managed in a way that the goal is defined to benefit both countries in terms of economic development, in terms of decarbonization potential, but also thinking about globally how to help other countries transition faster in terms of mitigation and adaptation to the climate impact that they are facing increasingly at increasing risk. So I think it's a careful balance that we need to consider here, but the underpinning of that is, is really to have these candid conversation between the two countries where when it comes to climate change cooperation and competition, we are aligned on the goal to help society realize our potential to decarbonize as soon as we can. I think that's the most important message that the two countries must agree on before we go ahead with that very, or rather complex mode of cooperation. Now, China is unquestionably a global leader in the development and deployment of clean energy technologies. At the same time, it's building new coal and gas plants at unprecedented rates and uh, also leading in that sense, uh, perhaps negative for an emissions from an emissions standpoint. How do you reconcile those dynamics of China being a leader in both clean energy and fossil fuels, particularly as China is trying to strike a balance between further economic growth and sustainable development? I would I would try to answer it in, in a way that takes into consideration of the particular context that uh, that these the, the nature of the transactions, the infrastructure uh, projects that that occurs between China and some of its BRI uh, BRI meaning Belt and Road Initiative uh, clients or or partners. If I remember correctly, the Belt and Road Initiative started off without an environmental standard to it, meaning that. Yes, some of these coal plants that were built in some of these developing countries were essentially kind of counterintuitive to the, to the fact that China is also at the same time a leader in clean energy. But I forgot where exactly, when exactly this occurred. It could have been in 2020 and 2021 where China signed on to a, or the president of China, Mr. President Xi, announced that China will stop building coal power plants in foreign countries, including in these uh, projects that they pursue under the BRI initiative. I think what that means is China has become aware of the impact, particularly climate and environmental impact associated with these coal power plants being built abroad, 
and have decided to pursue projects that have a greater environmental consideration, greater climate consideration. And I would assume that that would mean that many of these energy-related projects would be at now very much driven by a clean energy or a renewable energy agenda. But we must also recognize that at the same time, China, and like many other developing countries that have a significant economic presence and footprint in the global economy, is is going through a phase in their development where it's difficult, it's important to, but it's also difficult to transition to greater renewable energy given their historic reliance on coal. And as we know that clean energy systems, um, while can be introduced at a very fast pace, a pace cannot uh, you know, overnight uh, take over the entire energy system um, that supports the local economy. So it'd be interesting to continue to observe and to follow how China's coal uh, usage in terms of capacity, in terms of building out additional coal facilities in terms of usage um, is going to develop in the coming years as we follow China's, as we all know, China's economy is slowing down. So it'd be interesting to see how fast that clean energy transformation is taking place and whether the country is capable of continuing to level and to decrease its reliance on coal under a, I'd say, more challenging economic condition. Now, I want to discuss a little bit about what you see as both from a public policy and from a private sector standpoint as important areas for the U.S. and China to work on. And I'll start with that first sector, the public sector. What does effective and smart public policy look like for both the U.S. and China in advancing progress on climate change? To answer that question, I think it's important to begin with communicating areas of interest of high priorities between the two countries. As I have kind of referred to earlier, I think one area is that's being currently pursued is methane emission. And that might just begin by building capacity across U.S. and China to better understand and better trace and better track and quantify the methane that's going into the atmosphere. Right. I think that's a material first step to building that collaboration by having a better understanding of the baseline emission situation in the two countries. The so methane could be an area that has massive potential and that knowledge and that model for cooperation and that outcome that come out of it could have a lot of implications for other countries that are that are willing to understand its methane emissions, but currently doesn't have that capacity to do so. Another area of public policy cooperation, I think, is to work on how the two countries can not only work bilaterally, but also in greater global partnership models in the ways that uh, encourages diverse stakeholders, encourages other member states to come together to, to cooperate. And what I mean by that can take place in the forms of financial cooperation. That means channeling greater capital flow towards uh, financing projects, financing private sector, financing startups to, uh, to decarbonize. That could look at, that could, you could look at sustainable trade practices between the two countries. China is a huge manufacturing powerhouse, but also leading partners in trade with 
over a hundred countries in the world and the ability or the potential to have China and U.S. agree on principles that could set greater sustainability, sustainable standards when it comes to international trade could have huge implications. And the last that I'll mention is capacity building for developing countries where China and U.S. again could look at how they can leverage the knowledge, the technical capacity and that financing and in the ways uh, in terms of advisory and transfer to collectively help countries that are more vulnerable to climate change, such as small island country states or such as developing economies in Africa or in Southeast Asia to better build a more resilient society through green growth that are supported by resources pledged by U.S. and China. So I think these are these would be very effective models that could engage, engage a broader set of uh, international stakeholders, whereas U.S. and China doesn't necessarily need to compete, but find aligned interest to co- cooperate in regions that could really have or could really benefit from the U.S. and China's presence in promoting a greener economy. What is the role of climate finance in many different forms, philanthropy, multilateral development banks, venture capital, and private investment in helping bridge the gap in terms of current investments, both with the U.S. and China on climate tech and clean energy and both what is why is climate finance important and how would the US and China go about unleashing more climate finance, particularly for international development purposes? I think the role of climate finance couldn't be more important. The role that climate finance could play is it will make a difference between whether you can demonstrate the effectiveness of a clean energy or low carbon product versus whether you can scale it and provides enough services and goods to enough people to actually realize the climate benefit at that scale necessary to actually make a difference in the broader sort of sense of climate mitigation. Climate finance, as we know, is financing for the sake of addressing the negative impact of climate change. And that took the form of uh, financing for technology, financing for conservation, that could be financing startups that have a huge potential in mitigating food waste. And why it's so important is we have calculated how much it is needed to be financed today in order to realize a 1.5 Celsius degree or a 2 Celsius degree greenhouse gas temperature rise potential. And we are currently financing at about 15, 16% of what is needed to keep that temperature rise within 1.5 or 2 Celsius degrees. And essentially what we need to do is to fill that remaining 80%, we need to create opportunities and the enabling environments for these funds uh, to flow through. So the role of Chinese capital and the role of U.S. capital is, is more important because U.S. and China collectively represent about 40% of global economic uh, output in terms of GDP, but also more than 40% of global CO2 emission. So what China has done really well in the past, and that is demonstrated by example, is the issuing of green finance, including bonds, uh, including other forms of debts, 
and the U.S. Has, has done really well is I think you can see in the private sector an increasing amount of financing activity in terms of mergers and acquisitions, in terms of capital raising for renewable energy, for sustainable transportation, for sustainable agriculture. The greater implication for the international development purpose, and one area that I think has huge potential, is actually Southeast Asia. So U.S. and China, as, as we were aware, both have some sense of economic and security interest in this region. So what South, Southeast Asia could potentially consider is leveraging the interest of U.S. and China in the region to pull more capital, to pull more investments towards areas such as sustainable trade practices, towards building a greener city, towards building greater transportation systems that are resilient and sustainable, or, you know, in a way that uh, encourages greater sustainable trade practices. So for that purpose, I think U.S. and China has a great role to play simply because the sheer amount of capital that they have to deploy and how that is going to affect the future of regions like Southeast Asia in terms of how that city, how these societies will look like with so much U.S. and Chinese capital behind. So I think there's huge economic opportunities there. That's very insightful. And I want to close off with one question, which is what, in your view, does true leadership from China and the U.S. on the climate issue look like? Both unilaterally and bilaterally, what do the respective countries need to do to really be considered a global leader in tackling climate change? If you have been following climate diplomacy between U.S. and China for the past 10 years, you'd realize that there are two very important people that are involved in this process. One is the China climate envoy, Mr. Xie Zhenghua, the other being the U.S. counterpart, the special envoy for climate for uh, President Biden, Mr. John Kerry. And what we've uh, seen throughout that negotiating and partnership process over the past 10 years is a fantastic level of trust between two charismatic individuals that were able to help navigate and steer the two countries on a interest-aligned course that takes into the goal of decarbonization, of ensuring a sustainable future, resilient future, for not just U.S. and China, but also the entire world in mind, and following up with actions such as a number of very high-level I'd say groundbreaking joint agreements between the two countries, such as the 2014 climate, the climate agreement between the two countries, as well as, for example, the very recent one that's been signed at COP26 on methane. I think true leadership needs to, needs to take into that particular account of the real, the, the real geopolitical challenge between the two countries. And on top of that, look for opportunities to collaborate and I think that collaboration will only sustain if the two sides, when it comes to climate cooperation, trust each other to deliver on their respective promises and be willing to cooperate together at the government level to work on things that one country itself cannot accomplish. And I think the methane emission pledge is, is really one that's remarkable in that sense. And these pledges are really uh, incredible for developing and creating an enabling environment for future possible cooperation between the two countries. So I think trust is really important. Communication is important. 
and looking for innovative opportunities to work on this together under a reality of geopolitical challenge are most important after all. Thanks again to Kevin for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development's research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.